0: toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. So if you went into the room of the average teenager, you might find some posters on their walls of heroes. So maybe athletes, musicians, movie stars, in some cases, maybe even sci-fi. So this is an actual photograph of Steve Weir's room from the 80s. And so, the Star Wars posters, and and then as now, Steve is so productive, he cannot handle just one computer. He's got to have multiple things going on. It's actually a lie. That's not Steve Weir's room. I just found that picture on the internet, but I wanted to get back at him because at the beginning of this series, he said something mean about me. I don't even remember what it was, but I knew then that I've got to get back at him. So there it is. There it is, Steve. Touche. All right. We as adults, uh, we typically don't have posters of our, our heroes, but we still have heroes. And may, maybe for you, it is a business person that you look up to, their, their success and how they've achieved it. Maybe for you, it's an athlete of, of some sort. Maybe uh, for some of you, it's a scientist, somebody that discovered something or created some, some new way to battle a disease, uh, an author, Maybe a pasture thrown in there somewhere. Here, here's how you know who your heroes are. It's someone that you listen to very closely, someone that you might quote, someone that you mimic, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and it's someone that you defend when someone attacks them. So I I was reading a study this week from Psychology Today, and the title of this is Reasons Why We Have Heroes. So they give 12 reasons. I'm just going to read the first seven. Heroes give us hope. They energize us. They develop us. They heal us. That's interesting. Heroes impart wisdom. They are role models for morality. That one's questionable, depending on who your, who your hero is. Heroes offer safety and protection. The, the bottom line of the article, he, he concluded this, we need heroes to get us through this challenging experience called life. And so scripture actually advocates that we have examples to look up to. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it talks. Uh, Peter gives instruction to elders, and he says to them, be examples to the flock, So elders in the church are to live in such a way that others can watch their lives and say, I want to imitate, I want to mimic you. I'm, I'm very thankful to be at a church where we have elders that in so very many ways are worth imitating and following their example. Scripture gives us many, many people that we could call heroes, people whose lives are worth imitating. David would be one of those. So we've been studying his life over the last several months. Scripture calls him a man after God's heart. And so there are a lot of qualities about David that are worth imitating. However, there are some huge mistakes that David made along the way. We have looked at a few of them, and he's actually, he will make even bigger mistakes that we haven't gotten to yet as we look at at his life. And, And here is the danger with heroes. Because with all the good qualities that a human hero may have, there's always going to be weaknesses. There's going to be failures on their part. There's going to be a time where they fall off that pedestal that we may have put them up on. And the question is, what happens at that point when our heroes fail us? Will you become disillusioned and cynical about life and say, well, I've lost my faith in humanity completely. Or will you defend that person and overlook their mistakes and maybe even mimic their mistakes? If it was good enough for them, it's good enough for for me. That's the problem we run into with, with heroes. And the question for us this morning is, is it possible to benefit from the qualities of a hero that are worth imitating without getting dragged down by the things that they do wrong. I think it is possible, and we're going to explore that this morning. If you would turn with me in 1 Samuel to chapter 27. We're going to be covering two chapters this morning and a couple of extra verses besides, so buckle in because we're going to move fast. If you're using a Bible that's there at your seat. Uh, 1 Samuel 26 is on page 276. The last two weeks... We have seen David at his best and at his worst. Two weeks ago, we saw David spare Saul's life. After years of Saul pursuing David, trying to kill him, David had him right where he wanted him, and he let him go because he was trusting the Lord to give him the kingship instead of trying to take it for himself. Then last week, so that was a high point for David. That was a high watermark. Last week, We saw a low point for David because we saw a man named Nabal insult David and David was just, he hit his breaking point and he said, I've had it. He he went after him. He was going to kill Nabal and not only Nabal, but all the men that worked for Nabal, innocent people had nothing to do with the situation. David had just lost it and, and was about to melt down. But Abigail, God sent Abigail to intervene in that. So if you missed all of that, you have another chance today because we're going to see both a high and a low of David again. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakala, which is on the east of Jeshimon?" So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Now, in case you missed the last several weeks, you, you wouldn't know, but this is like deja vu all over again because the people of Ziph who are of the tribe of Judah, which is where David is from, they are they're betraying David again. They're telling Saul where to find him and Saul goes after him even though at the end of chapter 24 it seemed like there was a truce. After David spared Saul's life, it seemed like Saul was going to back off And leave him alone, but now he is on the trail again. Go down to verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water. From Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. David is taking a huge risk here. I mean, he's going right into the, the the den of wolves here, and and right into the midst of this army. But this deep sleep protects him. Every time that Hebrew word for deep sleep, every time it shows up, it's referring to a supernatural sleep, that the the origin is from God. The first time we see it is when God puts Adam to sleep and does surgery on him to take a rib out and create the woman. Uh, The second time we see it is in Genesis when God puts Abraham to sleep and makes a covenant with Abraham that Abraham really can't keep on his own. God is making a unilateral covenant with him, so he puts him to sleep to do that. So all of this whole army and Saul are asleep, and Abishai, who's right there with David, is ready to take Saul out. And he uses the same argument that was used in the cave two weeks ago. Verse 8, Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. And he says, so so let me pin him to the ground. I won't even have to do it twice. Please, please, please. You can just hear him. And David restrains him with the same argument that he used in the cave. Verse 9, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So they walk away, and they take only the spear, which is a symbol of Saul's authority as king. And they take this jug of water, which is a symbol of of life. I mean, we need water to live. So they're taking both of these things as a picture for Saul that if David wanted to get rid of him, he easily could have in this moment. So so they leave with these things. Verse 13. Then David went to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's bodyguard, "'Will you not answer, Abner?' And Abner answered, "'Who are you who calls to the king?' And David said to Abner, "'Are you not a man who is like you?' "'Are you not a man who is like you in Israel?' Why then have you not kept watch over your lord and king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. That was Abishai. This thing that you have done is not good. As Yahweh lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your lord, Yahweh's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was at his head." Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after a servant? What have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is Yahweh who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering." So David's saying, if, if I've done something wrong and Yahweh is sending you to, to, be, to bring judgment on me, then may, may God accept an offering of repentance to you. But if it's men who are stirring you up against me, may they be cursed before Yahweh because they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the land of of Israel as the heritage of the Lord. The the promised land was given to God's people so that they could settle there and establish a, a culture and a people that would model to the world, this is what it looks like to live in worship and obedience to the one true God. And that's all David wanted to do, was just settle and to worship God and to obey him. God said, I will come and live among you in this land. And so David's saying, you're driving me out of this place. I can't even live here and worship. And you're essentially saying, go live someplace else where God is not, and you're going to have to worship other gods. He's, He's like, please just leave me alone and let me worship in peace. Verse 20, now therefore... Let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of Yahweh, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I've sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. How often have we heard him say that? Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. So Saul says, David, it's okay, come back, return, you can settle. But David ignores that invitation because he knows Saul well enough by now. Verse 22, David answered and said, here's the spear, O king, let one of the young men come over and take it. David refuses to hold on to this symbol of kingship. He's going to wait for God to give it to him. Verse 23, David says, Yahweh rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For Yahweh gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against Yahweh's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of Yahweh, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. This, this verse, this, this sounds a lot like Psalm 17, we've done a lot in this series of seeing, getting into David's mind and heart and and what he has to say in, in the Psalms. So this is kind of an expansion on what he says in verse 24. He says, hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come, let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Isn't that beautiful? From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. David has deadly enemies surrounding him. Saul is on his tail and in the midst of that, he says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. That's what he's saying in verse 24. May my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. This, this is a high point for David. I mean, he's showing incredible courage. He's going into the enemy camp. He's just, he's just plowing in there, taking his, life, his own life into his hands. He's, he's discerning He's not taken in by Saul's emotional ups and downs. He's learning to to listen past the words. And he's faith-filled. He is choosing to not take by force what God has promised by grace. So Saul responds in verse 25. Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. And those are the last words that Saul will speak to David. We could stop there. And if we did, we would get out early today, which you would probably like. And we would have another opportunity to say, wow, David is really a hero worth following. Man, he's got, there's so, much, he's got so much good stuff going on. But it's important to see that our hero is far from perfect, that he is very Human. So let's read on into chapter 27. Then David said in his heart, so then David said in his heart, we don't know how long transpires. Then would suggest that maybe not too long. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines, then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. What happened to hide me in the shadow of your wings? What happened to I'm the apple of God's eye? David's having a a bad, rough day here. This is is a statement of unbelief. Now, I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. He's not believing that he's going to become the king. He's thinking Saul's going to get the other hand. The word perish here, the Hebrew word perish, shows up in passages that talk about God's judgment. So David at this moment is feeling like God, even God is against him. God is not for him. Please note before we read on, This is David having a conversation with himself. See what it says? David said in his heart, beware of having a conversation with yourself when you should be having a conversation with God. Let me say that again. Beware of having a conversation with yourself in your own head when you should be having a conversation with God. Let's read on, verse 2. So David arose, and he went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So David was right if he went of Gath, Saul would leave him alone. But this is Gath. This is Gath, you may remember, is the land of Goliath. This is Gath, some of you may remember, from a number of weeks ago that David fled to already once with Achish, and Achish threatened him, and so he acted insane to escape, and then he, he slipped out. He's going back To Akish now. And Akish is welcoming him. Why does he welcome him now? Maybe because he's heard, we're not sure, but maybe it's because Akish has heard that Saul is after David. So he thinks, well, Akish is an enemy of Saul. So if David is an enemy of Saul, then David must be friendly to Akish, maybe. He probably knows that David is from Judah. So he thinks, maybe if I can get Judah on my side against uh, Saul, Maybe we can gang up on him. Not sure why, but for whatever reason, Achish welcomes him back, along with his 600 men and their families, probably a few thousand people. Verse 5, David said to Achish, If I've found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in your royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, far to the south, Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day, and the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt." And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and came back to Achish. And Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? Which I just, that question just strikes me as funny. It's like, so what'd you do this afternoon? You know, stop by the store, stop by Wawa, whatever. What, what'd you do today? Where'd you make a raid? David would say against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of the Jeremielites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. Now, before we read on, can you compare those three that David just said with the three groups of people in verse 8 that he actually raided? What do you see? They're not the same. They're not the same. We'll explain that in a moment. Verse 11, David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. So David is pulling the wool over Achish's eyes here. In verse 10, the people that David says he's raiding are actually his own people, He says he's going against the people of Judah, the Jeremiahites, the Kenites. Those are people that Achish hates and is against. But the people that David is actually going against is in verse 8, the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. Those are allies of Achish. And so, so Achish thinks that David is going against his own people, and has made himself a stench with them. But meanwhile, David is actually protecting his own people by going against their, their enemies. This, uh, and, and he is killing off all of these, these people, which we could argue is David continuing the work of conquest of the land. Because some of these people, like especially the Amalekites, they were people that God had said, I want you to wipe them out. And when God says to wipe a people out, it's because they were such a terrible influence in that area that they just needed to be wiped out and all of their their memory because God was purifying that land. He was establishing that place to be the worship of him as the true God. So he did not want worship of false gods. He was purifying the land. So you could argue that maybe David was continuing that work because these people had not been wiped out. But when God told David, his people, to wipe out people. He told them to wipe them out along with their animals. And David's whole purpose here is to have the animals because he's trying to feed his men. He's got a couple thousand people to feed. And so this is how he's doing it. So David is not doing this in obedience to the Lord. This is is a low point for David. He's being underhanded. He's deceiving Achish. He's killing off all of these people, to Akish, David is a feather in his cap. He's like, ha ha, Saul, I got David on my side. But to David, Akish is gullible. And for a moment, David probably feels good. He's like, man, this trip to Gath is working out a lot better than my last one. I've got food for my men. I'm safe from Saul. I'm far from Akish. That's why he wanted to be in another town, so Akish couldn't keep track of what he was doing. But David's lack of faith and his deception catch up with him. We'll read just two verses into chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel and Saul as their king. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are going to go out with me in the army. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, now Achish is saying, David, you're going to fight against your own people, Verse 2, David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. David has backed himself into a corner. I mean, he plays along here. You know, he says, hey, you ain't seen nothing yet. You'll, You'll see what we can do when we go out to war. But In the back of his mind, he has to be thinking, what is this going to look like? What is it going to look like when I actually go out to battle, like face to face with my own people? What if in the battle, he actually faces Saul? I mean, is he going to kill him then? Is that okay, but it hasn't been okay to kill him when he had him, when he wasn't in battle? How is this all going to play out? Well, you're going to have to hang on until October to find out because we're going to take a break in September from 1 Samuel. We'll come back and finish it up the beginning of of October. Actually, I can't stop you from from reading ahead. But before the break, I I just want to make uh, an observation based on David's highs and lows. David has virtues that we do well to emulate. I mean, I think nobody would argue that. He has courage. uh, He has discernment. He has an incredible level of intimacy with God and many, many times trust in God and what God has promised to him. But David also has weaknesses that we would do well to avoid. I mean, he has a temper. He can resort to deception. He has moments of doubt. Which... I have to point out again, this, this points to the credibility of Scripture to me. Because if you, read the, if you read other ancient accounts of kings, they include just the highlight reels. They're, they're not going to include the low points like, like this. So this points to the fact that Scripture was not written by, by human authors with human intents. It was written by, it was recorded by human authors, but God is the author and God is the main character And every human being is flawed. So do we treat David as a hero, or do we condemn him as a fraud? How do we sort out when to follow a hero and when we need to take a path different than what they're doing at the moment? Well, here's the answer to that. Follow your heroes as they follow Christ. You follow your heroes as they follow follow Christ. I'm quoting, of course, the the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul, we could argue, is a hero in, in Scripture. And he makes a lot of mistakes early in his life, but we actually don't see very many, if any, mistakes or weaknesses from him after he comes to faith in Christ. And yet, even Paul does not just just put a blanket statement out there and say, just follow me, do as I do. He says, be an imitator of me as I follow Christ. To the extent that you see in me what are Christ-like qualities and Christ-like actions, that's the extent to which you should follow me. See, we need a filter for our human heroes, those people that you listen to, extra carefully, There's people that you quote, There's people that you mimic, consciously or unconsciously, There's people that you defend when other people criticize them. We, we need a filter for them because they're always going to make mistakes. They're always going to fall off of that pedestal that we put them up on. Hebrews 11, that whole chapter has been called kind of the, the hall of faith or the hall of, of heroes of faith. And every person in that list had highs and lows. In fact, David, it's it's interesting, David is only barely mentioned in that chapter. I mean, his name is mentioned, nothing about what he did. Even though David is mentioned throughout Scripture far more than any other king. He's mentioned over 900 times, far and away beyond any of the other 42 kings that are mentioned in Scripture. And yet David's name is only mentioned in passing in the list. There is more in Hebrews chapter 11 about Rahab, the prostitute, than there is about David. Beth Moore says it's, It's only by God's grace that David made it into that list at all, and that is actually true of every single person on that list. It's only by God's grace that they made it in. We need a filter for our human heroes, and Hebrews 12, which comes right after that listing of heroes, highlights the filter that we need. See, we, you you, and I run our race surrounded by heroes of the faith but fixing our eyes on Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He is the only one who has run his race without tripping, without ever making a mistake, without cutting any corners, without sinning in any way to tarnish his record. And he did that so that his perfect record could be credited to you and I who have a grossly imperfect record. So that his record could be credited to David and every other person in that list, of Rahab, every person who has ever failed, that the Jesus perfect record could be exchanged for our grossly imperfect record. Jesus is the ultimate hero who will never fail us, never fall off of a pedestal, will never disillusion us. If you have never looked to him and said, Jesus, I want you as my ultimate hero, I want to make that exchange because my record is a mess. If you've never made that request of him, make today your day to do that. See, it's not a bad thing to have human heroes. We just have to know when it's good to follow them and when we need to take a different path. We should follow our heroes as they follow Christ. So here's a question to to discern for you. What is it about my hero that reminds me of Christ? At that point, it's, it's good to follow them, follow their example. But at whatever point they divert from the example of Christ, at that point, you fix your eyes on Jesus alone, and follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us Christ as the perfect example. And even as an example, we are not able to perfectly follow his example. It's just too much for us. And so thank you that he died in our place so that his perfect record could be exchanged for our grossly imperfect record. And so we thank you, Lord, for the virtues that we're able to observe in David's life and in so many other characters in Scripture and even in so many other people, maybe in this room, maybe in our family, so so many positive things that people emulate that that really are qualities that Christ has demonstrated. Thank you for those because it's good to see those in action in, in real life and then be able to work those into our own life. But Lord, we recognize and confess that there is no human being that deserves to be on a pedestal that belongs only to you in your perfection. And so today, Jesus, may we embrace the perfection that you offer to us by faith. I pray for the person who's who's here, who's still trying to do it on their own, trying to do their best, maybe trying to follow their hero, but keeps falling short. Help them to rest in the finished work of Christ and to follow him wherever you lead, when when you go, we, we go. When you stay, we stay. We, we want to follow you, Jesus. Thank you for going before us. We pray in your name. Amen.